0: This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? We are joined by our friend, Mark Bookman, from the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. Welcome, Mark.
1: Great to see you guys again. Uh, Good to
0: see you, too. Again, we are on uh, the equivalent of Radio Row. We're in an empty conference room uh, at the Monterey Capital Defense Conference. Mark has joined us again, so we're, we're thrilled to have you, Mark. On this episode of Ader Better, we're going to talk about the matter of Kareem Johnson, we're also going to see what's happening in Pennsylvania in terms of criminal justice and also get an update on the Ricky Olds case. Mark, we're so happy to have you. How are you?
1: It's great to be here. A lot is going on in Pennsylvania, so let me, let me, let me catch you guys up a little bit. You know, I mean, I've had a lot of cases in my day, but there's no case like Kareem Johnson. I'll give you a little bit of background. Uh, in 2006, I guess, or 2007, Kareem uh, went to trial. Uh, represented by two lawyers, one of whom is well known. Uh, well, they're both actually quite well known, but one of them is, is, was considered at the time kind of a leading light in the defense community. And uh, the evidence against him was, was interesting and, and somewhat compelling. The claim by the, by the state, by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, was that Kareem had come up close to the victim and shot him uh, in the head, and he was so close to the victim that the victim's blood kind of blew back onto the rim, the brim of Kareem's hat, and and then Kareem fled the scene, and the hat flew off. It was about eight feet from the body.
0: The idea was Kareem's hat flew off. The,
1: uh, the Kareem's hat flew off. That's right, and so the Commonwealth's evidence was, I mean, they had a, they had a snitch and they had kind of the usual crap, but the real evidence against him was this hat that they said had Kareem Johnson's sweat on it and the blood from the victim. So it was very, very compelling evidence, and and the district attorney spent a lot of time saying, you don't have to believe me, you don't have to believe any of the witnesses, all you have to believe is the physical evidence, this compelling hat with the blood and the sweat on it.
0: And they said that during their examination, but also in their closing argument, they talked about, don't worry about the snitch, the blood doesn't lie, the blood doesn't need to protect itself from prosecution. The the blood blood. can't be impeached. That's right. They they said all those lines. Oh yeah.
1: The hat was their their central evidence in the case. And they succeeded in getting a death sentence, a conviction and a death sentence. And so now we can flash forward nine years or so.
0: And before you get there, I'll just tell you, when you told me about this case, I started by reading the supreme court decision the state supreme court decision affirming the death sentence oh yeah and it was focused on the hat it was yeah. all about the hat and even though the snitches were unreliable or whatever the hat was what it was all about yes it seemed like a pretty open and shut situation for the state supreme court when you had the hat
2: strong case can okay. i ask you about that of like it, at, the, at the trial level this hat. So there was a police officer that testified to I didn't even I uh, forgot the locating thinking. the hat or, or, or at least having observations of the hat and saying that he observed fresh, such a fresh fr- blood. Fresh
1: drops of blood on the brim of the hat. He testified that he was a crime scene officer. He got to the crime scene. He documented it. He took a lot of photos and he observed fresh drops of blood coming off the brim of the hat.
2: And did they follow that up? Did the state follow that up with any expert witnesses or was it just this officer's observations it, of the hat? It
1: was the officer's observations and they had a DNA expert who said that blood from the victim was on the hat and there was sweat from Kareem Johnson on the hat. So, the, I mean, the whole case was the hat. So the case gets taken over by the Federal Habeas Unit in Philadelphia. This is a premier unit in the country, in my opinion, and, and many of my, my good friends work there and they do a phenomenal job. And so they started making inquiries about it. And one of the basic inquiries was just, we would like some police reports about this hat. Uh, We'd like to see how the crime lab, you know, did their analysis and asked for a lot of documents. And the state, uh, the Commonwealth, uh, uh, alleged this was a fishing expedition. They have no basis to challenge Any of this evidence, and they're just fishing. They're just looking for something. And so they objected. The judge fortunately overruled their objection. They went to the lab, and one thing led to another, and they found out that there was, in fact, no blood on the hat at all, and that there was a second hat in the case. And it was a hat worn by the victim that had the blood. So, of course, the victim was shot in the head. It's obvious that the victim's blood would be on that hat. There was no blood at all on the red hat, the hat that was on the ground that they claimed. And so one thing led to another. It turned out that there was no blood on the hat that the crime scene officer was lying, the assigned detective claims to not have known any of this. The prosecutor overlooked the following evidence. This is his testimony. He didn't realize that none of the crime scene photos showed blood on the hat. He didn't realize that there were two hats in the case. He didn't realize that the property receipt with the red hat didn't make any mention of blood on it. He didn't realize anything.
0: Like the crime scene detective didn't take any photos of the bloody hat. That's as it right. Lied. They
1: took. Ha- they actually took photos of the hat, and it showed. N- it there was no evidence of blood. He didn't turn. He didn't turn it over to indicate. I mean, anyone that's done that's handled homicides knows that when you have physical evidence like blood, they take a picture of the blood. That's one of the very first things that you do. So a new trial was granted, and that's, the, that's kind of the first step. A new trial gets granted. The Commonwealth is still seeking the death penalty. I then take the case from the, from the habeas unit because now their job is done. They've gotten a new trial. And I ask the Commonwealth not to seek the death penalty based on the outrageous uh, evidence in the case. And, and, the, and what year is this, error? Mark, that you get involved? This is, I, I get involved probably about five years ago, I'm guessing. So yep, he was some, on. He,
0: he was sentenced to. He was sentenced. He was to death. on
1: death row for nine years. Okay. So I guess I took it over probably in 2015, maybe four years ago. And you're saying something
0: like, "Don't pursue the death penalty. Look at this. This is different than every other type." That's of That's right. That we this with.
1: the case is coming back for a new trial. Don't pursue the death penalty and take a good look at this. And in fact, the the district attorney's office decided not to seek the death okay. penalty, okay. which was an appropriate thing. So then I filed a a, a double jeopardy motion, and so the motion was basically. This is egregious conduct by the Commonwealth, and they shouldn't be allowed to, to try the case again. We have a two-day hearing uh, in front of a judge. In, interestingly enough, my former boss used to run the public defender's office in Philadelphia. And so we do a two-day hearing, and everyone testifies. And the prosecutor gets up and says, just a horrible mistake. I didn't, do, I didn't realize any of these things. And then the assigned detective gets up and says, "I didn't realize any of these things either."
0: The thing that they hung the whole case on—that's right—the blood and the sweat on the hat.
1: You're all over this, Avi. They didn't. So know. that's right. You know, this isn't my first rodeo. <laughs> there you go. So yes, they cl- not only not only do they claim they didn't realize the evidence, but in fact, that when the habeas unit had the case, they wrote a letter asking. For for all this police reports, these this, this discovery, and that that made the the crime lab generate. <coughs> excuse me, that made them generate a criminalistics report, which they had never generated in the case. Who knows why they generate a criminalistics report? It's addressed to the assigned detective and the homicide unit in the DA's office. Both of them claim they didn't get it. They never got the letter. Did, you they know.
0: Say, did they say that they mailed it or? Oh yeah,
1: it was it was sent. So it's, it's got the detective's name on it, and it's a, the and red it's hat. has got his or address. No, no, it's a criminalistics report for the whole case. Okay. The red hat, the black hat, the whole, you know, the whole case. And yeah. it makes it clear that there's no blood on the red hat. They claim they never saw the letter. The letter was sent, interestingly enough, the letter was sent about 16 months before the district attorney responded by saying it was a fishing expedition. The district attorney who responded and wrote it was a fishing expedition hadn't even checked to see if there was any any truth to, to their allegation to their questions.
0: So at, at some point, a crime lab or something like that sends a report that says there's no blood on the critical hat. Yes. Over a year after that, the post-conviction people are trying to get the reports about forensics and police reports and collection or whatever, and the DA says it's a fishing expedition. They That's shouldn't right. be able to get any of this. That's right. And then after they're exposed, they say, I didn't know that this existed. It's a big oops. Oops. Like everybody. we all messed up.
1: I mean, we just, we all made such a terrible mistake. I mean, we're so sorry. And I'm not, I mean, I'm just not buying a word of this. I don't know how anybody can. These are experienced people. Uh, The only person that I think bought it was the judge who didn't have the guts to look these people in the eye and say, you're lying to me under oath. So the judge finds that it's not Intentional. It's a an incomprehensible series of gross mistakes, is what he says. Did he say uh, something about intolerable? He says it's an. He says the way they handled the case was intolerable. He just he can't believe the error in the case, but he doesn't have the guts to call them but out. Gives her.
2: them that free pass. That's right. Gives
1: them a free pass. This is so common, it, you know. And this is like I said. This is this is my former boss. Uh, I mean my my gutless former boss I guess I should I guess I should say so so okay we lose I take the case to the superior court and now the law on double jeopardy and I'm not gonna spend too much time on the law but the law the law on double jeopardy requires intentional misbehavior to okay. bar a, a retrial you have to has to be intentional so the judge has just given them a pass I go to the superior court and I argue two things the superior court's the intermediate court in Pennsylvania I argue two things. One, that in fact the behavior is intentional. The evidence, the evidence is overwhelming that it, that, that it was intentional and and not a mistake. Uh, the second thing I argue is that if in fact it's true and they really did, you know, handle the case this way, that should also bar retrial because. You can't just wake up one morning, decide to throw the evidence against the wall, and, and after nine years on death row say, geez, we just made this terrible mistake. I guess we better do it again. The, the law cannot countenance that sort of behavior. So I go to the Superior Court and I make those two arguments. The Superior Court affirms the judge's findings. And in, in fairness to the Superior Court, it's not easy for a, a middle court to overrule a judge's findings. They could have done it, but it didn't surprise me that they didn't. There's they, some like
0: deference or something. There's like some that. there's
1: a lot of deference to the lower court. And they they find that the case was handled with deliberate indifference, which is a staggering phrase when you think about right. when you think about trying a capital case with deliberate indifference. I mean, imagine what that says about the the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So I file what we call in Pennsylvania an alicotter petition, which is a petition for allowance of appeal. It's like a cert petition, a certiorari petition, but in the state court. In In order
0: to go to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? That's right.
1: I'm not expecting much. Those grants are rare. But sure enough, the Supreme Court grants review. And now I'm going to file my brief in a a couple of days and I'm going to get ready to argue it. And the argument is fascinating because it looks like the the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is interested in what kind of deference should they pay the lower court? You know, do we just because the lower court didn't have the guts to call this intentional? Are they bound by that in any way? And, And I think pretty clearly they're not. And the second the second question is, is it intentional to handle a case this badly? Like, you know, if you decide not to prepare a case, isn't that an intentional decision to not prepare the case?
0: If you put on false testimony, whether and, it's knowingly false or recklessly false. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. I, 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 so so you've got the, the, the lower court made a mistake. It was truly intentional. Then you've got the intentionality of handling a case so casually or so recklessly really not casually recklessly and then you've got the third argument which is should double jeopardy bar retrial when you screw up a case this badly when 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 you when you do handle it this recklessly do you get a second bite at the apple so i think the supreme court's going to hear all of those arguments and the timing of this is fascinating because at the same time the pennsylvania supreme court is is considering the abolition of the death penalty. I, I, I don't see this as an accident. You know, I've been doing this a long time, and I've never seen a case this screwed up. I've never seen this kind of a grotesque mistake in quotes as as the Kareem Johnson case, as sending a guy to death row for nine years like this. At the same time, all of this is happening, there's a state study going on in Pennsylvania about the death penalty. It gets released after about seven years. It takes a long time for a lot of different reasons. The report was generated because the legislature wanted to get into 17 different areas of a bipartisan request to do a state study about 17 areas in the death penalty and whether it's working properly. Pennsylvania stands alone as, and California may be second. Pennsylvania stands alone as a state where the death penalty is not working. I mean, we've had hundreds of reversals terrible representation in every possible way. Yeah. So the state study comes out and the same federal unit, the, this great unit that I, that I love so much, they decide to file a motion asking the court to seek what's called King's Bench jurisdiction or extraordinary jurisdiction. Take a look at this study. The death penalty isn't working. You should use your extraordinary jurisdiction to take a look at the death penalty. No one expected that, that we would get any traction with this at all. And frankly, our Supreme Court would not have looked at this several years ago. But we have a new Supreme Court now. It's a progressive, smart, very, very intelligent court. And sure enough, they issue an order part of the order is should we should we exercise this jurisdiction but the other part of the order says we want briefing on the abolition of the death penalty and we're scheduling oral argument wow that's a staggering yeah. turn of events not and, connected to
0: an individual's case but it, it, looking well, at the well i mean two
1: in it's the motion is filed in, in two individual cases but it's obviously a systemic challenge okay and this is very kind of similar to what's happened in Washington State, which recently declared abolition of the death penalty on state grounds, and that's the grounds that we're pursuing now. So what we have is a briefing, and and the Atlantic Center, where where, where I where I work, we filed an amicus brief on this. Uh, a number of other people filed amicus briefs. So we've got kind of a confluence of a state challenge to the death penalty and the most disastrous case to come in front of the Supreme Court from a death penalty perspective, both coming at almost the exact same time. My brief is gonna get filed within days of the the other brief. It's quite a fascinating situation.
0: Uh, So not without getting too doctrinal, does it matter at all how much your client is experienced in terms of being put on death row for what's obviously been called by even the lower court, intolerable, inexcusable, Yeah, I don't know that they said that, but just... No, they declared I, I read parts reckless. of the closing. Deliberate indifference is Del- So if a person's put on death row, you know, they're being told that the state's going to kill them based on deliberate indifference or intolerable process. Does that matter at all to the double jeopardy analysis? You know, I mean, does it matter that what this person's been through uh, to your final conclusion?
1: I mean, there's case law that talks about the stress and the strain of facing execution. So that is part of it. It's It's certainly underpinning the nature of the claim. I mean, if Kareem Johnson had been on probation, all those years, the claim would have a lot less resonance. Mm-hmm. The idea that he came close to execution. And here's what another thing that's that's fascinating about this case. I'm focused very much on the prosecution and how unbelievably badly they handled it. Whatever you conclude, even in the best possible light, it's an outrage. You also have to consider from a working death penalty perspective, the lawyers on this case were completely asleep at the wheel because this could have been figured out by them. Decent lawyers would have figured out that this was a mistake in 15 minutes you would look at the property receipt numbers. The DNA report itself was not mistaken. The DNA report was actually accurate. It's just that no one checked the property receipt numbers to see what they were actually talking about. And this isn't a case
0: from 40 years ago. It's from the 2000s. It's so 2006.
1: It's, had a point. You know, That's there's appointed
0: right. council. We're, we're in a modern time. Oh, yeah. Time.
1: Not, not only is it modern, but they were obstructing the discovery of this in 2012, 2013. This really just happened. I, I say, I mean, You're asking a very good question. I think when we come on shows like this and we talk about prosecutorial misconduct and hiding evidence and and all the other scandals, I think we all tend to believe that it's ancient history, right? We don't believe that it's happening now because we're living now and we're watching it and we tend to believe we're seeing what sort of passes for justice. We don't believe that people are hiding evidence today. But 20 years from today, all these scandals are going to be revisited. And here's the reason why. We're not doing anything to change what's happening. There's no reason not to think that 20 years from now, we're going to see the same things. And they're going to, and 20 years from now, they're going to look back and say, that was 20 years ago. I, well, I
2: th- which is why your litigation is so significant, because essentially you are demanding and asking that there be a deterrent put into place for not only this prosecution's office, but for across the country. If you try a case with such reckless indifference or deliberate indifference or put on false evidence mm-hmm. for that matter that you won't get that second shot at the apple and instead you'll get a capital case dismissed essentially yeah and it's essentially a more robust version of our suppression rule there, uh, that, that i think you're uh, yeah. essentially seeking but you needed a judge to back you up and hopefully the
1: supreme court does that's right I, look there is a simple cure for this. Prosecute some prosecutors. And I mean, can you imagine a defendant claiming what they're claiming? The reception that would get by a court. You know, we didn't realize there was no blood on the hat. We didn't look at the hat. We didn't look at the property seat. We didn't realize there were two hats. We didn't look carefully at the DNA report. We didn't. You know, can you yeah. imagine a defendant having that as a well, defense? Let's it,
0: do another hypothetical. Can you imagine a defense attorney putting in a one hat theory as their theory? Right, right? A, pro- a defense attorney saying, well, you know, my client's innocent because there's one hat. And every single, uh, for lack of a better term, fuck-up uh, that has to occur, that's, you, you're in bar proceedings. I'm glad you said that,
1: because I've been, tri- I've been yeah. contemplating dropping the F-bomb like 20 times. <laughs> we have an explicit rating. Because it's rating. my <laughs> nature. Yeah, 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 yeah we have an explicit rating. You can say— Because <laughs> this case is fucking outrageous. Yeah. I'll say it, yeah.
0: I thought when you were talking about time as a Philadelphian that you were going to quote Rocky and say, Father Time is undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> But you didn't go there.
1: No, I didn't go. That was a little, what, Rocky Six or something? Yeah. I don't I don't know. That's where I stay. <laughs> but so you know, look, prosecute some prosecutors yeah. and this won't be happening anymore. Some of this stuff is outrageous, but
2: yeah, were any of these prosecutors, are they at least subject to any sort of bar discipline by the state or anything like that? So
1: the lead prosecutor in this case got fired by Larry Krasner, and that was obvious. No matter how you analyze his behavior in this case, whether it's intentional or unbelievably reckless, you get fired. Who would keep somebody that is practicing at this level? Right. You know, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, to so, get to the level of seeking the death penalty, you hope that the prosecutors have to have some level of experience and, you know, have to be promoted up a certain way. And so that means the standard of care is even higher when the stakes are as high as they can be. And that's
1: right. And the idea that you would handle a capital case this way is almost incomprehensible. I mean, I I would be offended if somebody handled a car theft case this way. Yeah, It would be true injustice. But this, in a different state, Kareem Johnson might have been executed. Uh, especially given the federal lawyers got access to discovery here. What if you're there in the 11th Circuit or the 5th Circuit and and they're saying, sorry, you don't get this discovery? I mean, had the judge not opened the crime lab to the defense, they wouldn't have this stuff.
0: This is something we've been looking at um, when these injustices, and, and this is obviously an injustice, whatever happens with the case, right? A person put on death row based on an obviously false premise, you know, right. that was critical. It's obviously unjust. When it happens, there's a good feeling, right? We we found out, right? There's a good feeling. But then the, the arbitrariness of our criminal justice system is put right before you because that habeas unit, you know, these, these incredible uh, talented attorneys who are funded by, you know, some agency that allows them to do their work, right? That they exist. All the things that don't have anything to do with what should happen in the case, right? So everybody should be represented by that unit, right? Sure. Uh, everybody should be able to have every stone turned up and held into the light. When you're talking about that sort of conviction, everybody should be able to get full access to discovery. And then you start thinking about just, who are the cream Johnsons who have not been identified yet, right? You think about that, and there is no limiting principle, right? There's no idea that, oh, well, it's just um, people who are in situation a B or C and we can identify those situations and we can put more resources there you can't do it right and so you start really getting you know I, f- I personally feel like a type of vertigo you know that sort of feeling about the sort of uh, injustices that exist
1: the arbitrariness is, is, is staggering I, I thought you were going to go in a different direction so I got a couple of things I want, I want to yeah. say hopefully they'll stay in my mind and I won't I won't forget them the first thing about the arbitrariness and I live through this somewhat. Fortunately, I guess, you know, the Philadelphia Public Defender Office, not the not the federal office, but the state office, the state homicide unit was handling 20 percent of the homicides. I was there from 93 to 2010. There's you know, they're still going on now out of the 20 percent. The defender office never took a single death sentence, but the other 80 percent took. I think it was 80 death sentences. So percentage-wise, the public defender's office should have taken sixteen or something like that, or more than 16. I think it's twenty you if you actually do the math. That's right. Yeah. Right. So, so the arbitrariness of what defendants get the twenty get lucky enough to be in the twenty percent is totally random. Uh, there are the ones getting you know good representation, and the other eighty percent are getting lawyers that are sleeping through DNA reports and not even you know not even pursuing it. That's one thing. I actually thought you were going to say something else as well. And this is, to me, interesting anyway. We look at these cases and we think, God, thank God this injustice was avoided. But in fact, it wasn't avoided at all. This guy went to death row for nine years. I'll tell another story about the same judge, the same former boss of mine. Many years ago, in the early 2000s, I represented uh, a serial killer. He got arrested on a cold hit after 20 years. And his fingerprints came up, and then he confessed very promptly to another five murders. I represented him. They charged him with five, but they didn't charge him with the sixth. The reason they didn't charge him with the sixth is that two guys were doing time for that murder. Everybody knew that those two—I wrote about this in The Atlantic. You You can read it. It's called The Confessions of Innocent Men. And uh, a book is coming out with that title. They can't believe it. they stole it from me, but I think I stole it from somebody else. <laughs> so you know, all comes around. Anyway, I think I actually was the one who coined it. <laughs> <laughs> so the two innocent, the two guys. Everybody knows that they're innocent, right? As, as, after this guy gets arrested, and the evidence against the two guys was pretty compelling. They both confessed, and then one of the two actually took a deal and testified against the other one. Wow. And yet they were both completely innocent. Oh my goodness. So so they both get lawyers, bad lawyers, and the lawyers eventually get them out. It took them like a year to get them out of prison. They should have gotten out the next day because everybody knew, including the judge, that they were innocent. Now they've served about 20 years in prison. They come before the judge. The judge, my former boss, the public defender, starts praising the prosecutors. First of all, the prosecutors had done nothing whatsoever. The judge says, thank you, prosecutors, for avoiding what might have been an injustice. Yeah. Can you imagine?
2: <laughs> These guys just
1: did 20 years for nothing, and he's praising the prosecutors for avoiding what might have been an injustice. injustice and, and frankly, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think this way. You hear this all the time. The system works. We caught the innocent person before they got executed. First of all, I don't believe that for a second. And secondly, what about all the time they spent on death row before they got acquitted or exonerated? So the system is not working in a profound way.
0: think we should talk a little bit about what's going on in Pennsylvania more generally. Last time you were on, we actually talked about one of your clients, Ricky Olds, who was a person sentenced to life without parole at 14, yes. or for an offense, for being present at offense at of 14. Yes. We've talked about it, actually. We've referred to it on other episodes, and we just think about being there, how that translates, Can you give us an update on what's going on with Ricky Old?
1: Just for the people that maybe have not read my piece on it or heard our discussion from last year. You know, we get hardened when you hear people like me who kind of tend towards hyperbolism a little bit. Mm -hmm. And and when you hear me talking about some of these outrageous cases, it's easy to tune out and say, oh, come on. But the truth is there was... Virtually no evidence against Ricky. I don't say there was actually no evidence against him. He went into a store, he bought some potato chips because he was hungry. The guy he was with decided to commit a robbery. Ricky took off and ran away. His older friend ended up killing the victim in the robbery. Ricky just ran back to the car because he was a 14-year-old kid. That's what you do when you're 14. And then he ended up doing 37 years in prison. And the only reason he was convicted, and I I will go to my deathbed believing this, is that he was a black kid and an all-white jury in Pittsburgh. There's no other reason. He had done nothing. The Superior Court upheld his conviction by pointing out that he arrived and he left in the same car as the perpetrator, they didn't point out that he was 14 years old. Well, he wasn't going to get an Uber. This was, you know, 1982 or something, right. whatever year it was. He, you know, he wasn't he wasn't calling a uh, hailing down a cab. It's an outrageous case. And Ricky's story right now doesn't end as favorably as I would like. He's out of prison. He's actually on my board of directors at, at the Atlantic Center. He's a member of our board, and uh, I filed an appeal for him, asking that he not be on lifetime parole. This is a kid that did 37 years in prison. He's now a 52-year-old man. He doesn't need to be on state parole any more than the three of us need to be on state parole. And I lost that because uh, it's a mandatory life parole. I lost in the Superior Court. The Supreme Court did not accept that appeal. That went up at the same time as Kareem's. Our our terrific governor, Governor Wolf, just got reelected. And our next step is to file a petition asking that he be pardoned entirely. And he should be. So Ricky is doing terrifically. Like I said, he's on our board and uh, he's on lifetime parole right now, and I certainly hope that that ends soon.
0: Putting a lifetime consequence on a child doesn't capture their adolescence and their development. And so that's why you can't give a life without parole to a child uh, for an offense, or you have to uh, give not effective you life can't, sentences. You can't give
1: a man—I mean, our yeah. laws for juveniles are still bad. Uh, they're I mean, very let's bad. Not kid- yeah, let's not Yeah, so themselves.
0: if a judge says that they're irreparably corrupt, uh, right. then you can still do— Cruel things to children, you know, absent that there's discretion there. So not mandatory, but the parole consequence is having someone in your life at any time be able to put you into a jail cell if you don't do uh, what that person instructs you to do. That is punishment. Yes. That's lifetime punishment.
1: And so you're asking
0: he's, them for relief.
1: He, he's on a, he's on a, a, a curfew. He's got to ask permission to do, you know, when we wanted to come to Philadelphia, he's got to get permission. I mean, he's treated like a child, basically. Uh, he, he's treated like a criminal, and he's not a criminal. So it is onerous. While we're on the topic of, of juveniles and, and Pennsylvania, I've got an argument coming up in two or three weeks in the Superior Court where a juvenile— got life without parole on resentencing after Miller, after Graham, after Montgomery, got resentenced to life without parole and was not convicted of first-degree murder. He was convicted of second-degree murder. So they're finding him irreparably corrupted when he wasn't even convicted of the most serious murder in Pennsylvania. Justice Kagan talks about the rarity of life without parole for juveniles. And we've got—I'm representing a juvenile now who didn't even commit— the worst murder, and got, I, and got it. I haven't
0: heard of a case of, on a second. Well, this is the only one found, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, so this is
1: the beauty that. of my job. You know, stuff like this kind of falls to me a little bit. So, you know, this is a, a pretty righteous argument. I don't know how he could be irreparably corrupted if he didn't even commit the worst crime.
0: Right. Can I ask you a Philadelphia question? Absolutely. Uh, that's kind of connected to the parole thing. What's happening with probation and these long grants of probation in Philadelphia, we were following Meek Mill. Yeah, Meek Mill. Uh, the idea that you could be on probation for such a long period of time. Do you have any thoughts about that, or what's happening, where it should go? So I think the
1: Meek Mill case is still pending. I I I, I hope Meek Mill listens to your podcast because I worked night and day to try to get him to come to a fundraiser for the Atlantic Center because our interests are very similar. But I could not penetrate. His, I talked to his agent at great length, so maybe yeah, Philip Meek, Meek maybe. Mill. It's Avi. Uh, Wait,
0: hold on, hold on, Mark, hold on. Hey, it's Avi. Um, I think you need to follow with Mark Bookman. <laughs> I think uh, this is a very important center that we are ride or die for. We love, by the way, we love what you do. We're just so glad this whole podcast thing, getting us to be able to talk to you about what you do, has been really eye opening, and uh, I feel just uh, really grateful to be able to talk to you about it. But Meek. Wait, back to you, Meek. <laughs> you better, you better come on that. Do what you need to do. Do the right thing. And same with the Seventy Sixers owner. He can come too.
1: Well, you know, M- Meek Mill is connected to the Seventy Sixers owner. I mean, they're they're all they're all together on this. And yeah. you know, I don't know what they're supporting, but it's not us. Uh, and look, I'm sure they're doing great work. <laughs> Whatever. To answer your question, Larry Krasner and his and his office are still doing terrific work. There is no limit to the length of probation or parole. What Meek Mill ran into is a judge who had no business being a judge. There was no answer to this question either. We should not be electing judges. Um, we really shouldn't be electing. We should be appointing them. Appointing judges has its own share of problems, as you know, we've got Justice Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court now. Uh, in my opinion, he shouldn't be there, and several other people shouldn't be there as well. But it's better than electing judges. And so Meek Mill ran into a judge who had no business being a judge. I think Krasner is trying to do a lot of good things. One problem that we've run into, we we had a case where where the prosecution and the defense agreed on relief went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, "Sorry, we don't care if you agree. We're still going to look at the merits of this case." Now, we got some good dissents, our chief justice dissented. It was a capital case. We didn't think the court had any business reviewing an agreement between the parties. I have an op-ed on my laptop. I haven't never, I have filed it, but the title of it is The Empire Strikes Back, and that's my feeling about Krasner and, and Pennsylvania. The empire is resistant to the kind of change that he's trying oh, to bring to, yeah. to Pennsylvania. And how, how yeah.
0: much you can trust the adversarial process, like in the case of a uh appointing a special prosecutor instead of the prosecutor's office to decide whether to violate people's probation. Right. You know, we don't trust Krasner to make a justice call, even though he's been elected. So we're going to have some, you know, retired DA, retired defense attorney, whatever it is, come be the one to decide who goes and gets violated.
1: Yeah. Well, and of course that's being, you know, I don't know if that's going to withstand scrutiny or not, but it clearly, the legal establishment is fighting hard against some of his some of his changes. Krasner has already left the Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association. He's out of that association because his views are just are not consistent with some of the really regressive prosecutors in, in Pennsylvania. So look, a change is going to come, as Sam Cook said, but it's not going to come easily. oh yeah you know we're we're in the middle of the battle
2: i mean i can imagine that his his success relative success is a threat to all all prosecutors across the country because all all bad ones yeah yeah exactly in terms of their wanting to hold on to the significant power that they have been afforded for so long with such deference and it reminds me of where, where we practice in santa clara county and there's um legislation that has been enacted in our state to bar the prosecution of 14- and 15-year-old children as adults, to change the felony murder rule. And in our county, our prosecutor is challenging the constitutionality of those very groundbreaking pieces of legislation in our state. From, from my perspective, it's a power grab, It's or it's a desperation attempt to hold on to power that they right. don't want to relinquish. So I can see why Krasner is a threat to the establishment.
1: You know, it's shocking because... Sometimes it's just, it's just a knee-jerk opposition, right? Even the most reasonable kind of suggestions, for instance, not prosecuting a 14-year-old as an adult. Anybody that has a 14 year old would understand that it, it's not a good solution. Maybe you want to extend juvenile jurisdiction. And, and of course, that comes with problems also. But there are other solutions. But instead, they knee jerk. You know, if it's anything progressive, we're going to object to it. right? Yeah. right? And, yeah. you know, there's just no discretion.
2: Like you said, it's not going to come easy. I mean, we in California were celebrating these results, and now we're having to fight these fights in, in our courthouses to defend the constitutionality of what we think is very fair, reasonable, and humane legislation, and then we're having to fight these battles against DA's offices that just don't want to relinquish power.
1: I don't know if it's always been this way, but it's been this way for my life anyway, which is that this is some sort of a sporting contest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just sides. Now, of course, you know, our idiot president has amplified this dramatically. Everything has become a contest, either him and his 30% win or the 70% win. And, it, it doesn't, you know, it's just one thing after, after another. But in the criminal justice system, you see this all the time. If the defense asks for anything, some prosecutors will simply object to it. It doesn't even matter if you, you know, if it's like a name change, you're going gonna to get a, an objection. You know, Steve Bright, Steve Bright, who everybody should know and, you know, a real icon in the community, said that the last place the civil rights movement has reached, and it hasn't reached it yet, is the criminal justice system. Oh, yeah. You walk in there and you see what's going on, you just can't believe it sometimes. Mm-hmm.
0: Mark, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to ask you, based on your the, you know, the things you've seen, the work you've done, uh, maybe people who have influenced you, do you have any kind of words for people who listen to think about the fight going forward? When you see all this extreme stuff, right, all these unjust cases, you know, you're still filing your motions, you're with your clients, you're in the courtroom, I think it would be really cool to hear what you would want people to think about.
1: You know, I, I'm not sure how people are going to, take this, but I'm, I'll say it anyway, because what the hell, you know, it's a it's an, a podcast. It's a podcast. So, so when I was a young, when I was a law student, I was beyond radical. I was pretty much of a communist. I was, a, I was kind of a doctrinaire communist almost. And if you look at all at Marx and, and Engels and any of that literature, you know, you start thinking about where the power is to make change, right? And the power was clearly in the district attorney's office. And I wanted to be an agent for change. I wanted to be a prosecutor. And fortunately for me, some terrific lawyers pulled me aside and said, you know, Bookman, we know your personality. Trust me, you're no prosecutor. Yeah. You're a public defender. And, the you know, so I was a public defender and they were clearly right about that. Uh, and they were right about it because you can't make change unless you are unless you're Making the change, unless you're running the office, unless you are the prosecutor, you can't. You're otherwise you're taking orders. That's a, a long way of saying that I'll take a good prosecutor like Krasner over 50 Mark Bookmans any day of the year. He's doing more good in uh, in a year than I've done in my lifetime. That's just, a, I don't know if it's a sad reality, it's just a reality. Our whole country is moving towards more progressive prosecutors. We're seeing them everywhere. They're coming out of the woodwork and we're electing prosecutors now that mean well, that want to get rid of cash bail, that want to, that want to decarcerate, that want to end the death penalty. That's how it's going to end. My middle daughter doesn't believe in prisons. I. Can't quite get that around my head. I don't quite understand how we do without prisons. I wonder where uh, she
0: was influenced from. <laughs> well,
1: I know, but I mean, that's more progressive than me, frankly. I just haven't figured out how, how, to, how, to, how to do that. But if you're, if you're somebody, here's my, my message, if you're somebody that can be a prosecutor, a good prosecutor, but recognizing that even good prosecutors have to do some things that are that maybe they don't want to do, things that I don't want to do myself, that's where the power is, and that's where the change is going to come. Um, from good prosecutors getting elected. You know, for people that want to fight the good fight on my side of the aisle, there's no better work, there's no more satisfying work. But for people that really want to change the system and not be reactive like me, be a good prosecutor. And, and
0: if you're in San Francisco, Chase Aboudin, public defender for many years, is running for district attorney. And so you can support Chase Aboudin and whoever else is. There's a in public your local defender community.
1: running in Pittsburgh. Against a, an entrenched district attorney who I have no love for at all, there's a public defender running for district attorney. I think in Queens. So this is starting to happen. And when we start to elect fair prosecutors, we're going to see a lot less. We're going to see a lot fewer Kareem Johnsons and Ricky Olds. That's for sure.
2: One thing I want to say, Mark, is that I wouldn't sell yourself short because the work that you have done and you, your colleagues and others have done lay the groundwork or make the ground fertile for someone like Larry Krasner to be elected. Like without the education, the litigation, the the groundwork that you've been putting in and empty and full courtrooms all at once and with the clients and the jails, that legwork, again, establishes the foundation for our communities to be so educated and thoughtful enough to elect a progressive prosecutor. So I think it's all integrated, and I think that will lay that groundwork uh, for other uh, jurisdictions across the country. Well, you know, I
1: always tell people, young lawyers, that the work that we do, criminal justice work, is not for everybody. There's a lot of other great work out there. It's immigration work and gay rights work and, and landlord tenant work. I mean there's just there's tons of fantastic progressive work that would make you feel that you're useful in this world. But if this work is right for you, there's no better work. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean it's totally just you, you know I always like to say in my entire life I never once looked at a clock and wished it was later in the day. Not once did I ever say, God, I wish it was 5 o'clock so I could go home. Like It <laughs> yeah. just never happens, and that's that's awesome. a nice thing to, it's a nice thing to have a job like that.
0: But I would say, just to argue with you, I will take 50 Mark Bookmans over one Larry Krasner. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably take a Larry Krasner over 10 Mark Bookmans, <laughs> yeah. but well, our tolerances are just at different levels. <laughs> thank Mark you. Mark Bookman, uh, thank you so much for being on Eater and a Better, and we will talk to you all next time.